All right. Well, I'm uh, really excited about our time together in God's Word today. I was telling Marta already on on Monday. I just I I, I couldn't wait. Uh, the Bible is really. I just want to say the Bible is amazing. If you ever wonder, uh, the Bible is amazing, and we're going to look at the Bible today like we we always do. But it's going to be a little different because I'm not uh, moving forward in uh, Luke like I like I thought I was going to move forward, uh, but I just. I couldn't. It's just uh, too amazing. And so we're going to stop and pause for a minute. And I hope, as we do, that you're going to be able to uh, track with what we're doing. It's going to take a little bit of lateral thinking, and I know that can be uh, challenging. Um, it's a little different, like I said. But if anything, uh, I hope that you're going to be able to go away thinking, man, there is always more there. In God's word. It's deep because there is there is always more there. I've been studying the Bible for a while now. I'm getting a little bit older and you read some of the stories uh, some of the statements and you've read them so many times and you think you know them uh, but then you find something new, something uh, different and you're like wow that just takes it to another level and that's been happening to me a lot lately actually. I've been studying Exodus because hopefully uh, we're going to get a chance to study Exodus sometime next year. And I'm just like, what? I went through, we went through Exodus uh, verse by verse in our uh, Bible studies on Thursday mornings. But this past week or two, I'm seeing things in a new way that I hadn't quite uh, seen before. And it's so good. It's, it's amazing. The Bible is amazing. And that's what happened even this week, as I was looking again at uh, Luke, uh, I was about to go to the next story, Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17, and there was actually something in that story that made me go back to the one that we looked at last week, Jesus healing the centurion's servant, because I think there's something there that you're going to want to see that I think is going to help you enjoy Jesus more. It's amazing. But to see how amazing exactly, you're going to have to be willing to do a little bit of, of work, which is probably the challenge because the Bible, and even uh, specifically the Gospel of Luke, was uh, written thousands of years ago, what we're reading. Originally to uh, people living in a different culture, a different time, and asking different questions. Important questions in God's design. God knew what he was doing. They are questions that are important for us. But they're not always the questions that we're initially asking as we open our Bibles to a gospel like Luke. And so it's easy to, to miss the point or to only get it superficially. But Luke tries to help us. The writers of the Bible try to help us. And Luke tries to help us because obviously God knew that he wasn't just writing to those people back then. He was writing to us. And so he wants us to ask the right questions as we read the gospel. And I know I repeat this almost every week, but that's why he begins his gospel with the introduction he does. You remember uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the very first verses, he says, I am writing this that you might be certain. And so there's some level of uncertainty there. That's what he's trying to address. And what is the uncertainty about? We keep reading and we meet all these different godly people who are hearing about the birth of Jesus and are excited. And then Luke records what they say to show us why they're excited. And you remember, they are excited because they believe Jesus is born to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament and save Israel. Bold print, Israel. Because that word Israel comes up seven times in chapters one and two just five more times in the rest of the gospel. But it's everywhere in the first couple of chapters in the introduction. Jesus is coming to save Israel. And of course, in those days, they had certain expectations about how he was supposed to do that. Jesus wasn't coming to a, a pagan society. He, he was coming to Israel, and much of Israel was very religious. And so they were reading their Bibles and they had been thinking about this a lot, especially the religious leadership. And they had ideas about how the Messiah was going to fulfill God's promises. And yet, of course, they look at Jesus and it doesn't look like Jesus is totally doing that. 
especially if we fast forward to the end of Luke because Jesus is crucified. And we go to the book of Acts and it doesn't get much better because while Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, which is great, by the end of the book of Acts, there's this thing called the church and it's filled mostly with Gentiles. Some Jews, but mostly people who are not Jews, Gentiles, which is not how they thought it was going to go. All these people like us, all these Gentiles. And so now we're getting to some of the questions, the uncertainty, because it's like, okay, this big thing happened with Jesus. I see that. It's clear. But how am I to understand what happened when I read my Old Testament now? Are we, are we talking about something that is completely new and disconnected? Because why didn't the religious leadership get it if it was connected? Or did God just decide to ignore all those things he said before? What's going on? What's happening with with Jesus? And Luke, if we're patient, step by step is answering that. He's telling the story of Jesus and answering that. And so after he gets out of the introduction and what everybody was excited about when Jesus was a baby, almost the first thing he does is introduce us again to the tension as he starts talking about Jesus's ministry. Here's the problem in the beginning of chapter three, and he begins with John the Baptist, and he begins with John the Baptist because that's who the Old Testament said it all was gonna begin with. There was gonna be someone who came before the Messiah, and Luke shows how that someone is clearly John, no question, and even back then, everybody recognized it. And yet, you know what? Luke tells us right after that, that John is thrown into prison and eventually beheaded. And it's like, wait, what? Am I reading this right? This is what is confusing. And as we're asking that question and wondering if we're getting it wrong, Luke right away tells us about Jesus's baptism, where Jesus identifies with Israel, righteous Israel. And so again, if you know your Old Testament, you know that God gave Israel a mission That's the story. It's like God said, I am going to fix the problems of the world somehow through Israel. And so at the beginning of the gospel, the first thing Jesus does is Jesus gets baptized, not because he's a sinner, but because he's saying, I am identifying with Israel. And you know, when he's baptized, just so we don't miss that, God the Father rips open heaven and affirms Jesus's mission by quoting an Old Testament text and says, this is my beloved son. In other words, this is the one I have sent to take on and accomplish Israel's mission. And then Luke takes it to another level and connects Jesus back to Adam. And so first it's like Jesus is gonna do what Israel is supposed to do. And then Luke says next, you know what? Even beyond that, it's like he's gonna be a second Adam. He's gonna do what Adam was supposed to do which is exciting and huge. But then God takes Jesus into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan and something really surprising happens. What happens is that Satan basically offers Jesus a way of accomplishing salvation and fulfilling the role of Israel. And it's essentially the way that everyone would have been expecting him to back in Jesus's day. And Jesus says, no, That's not how this is working. And so again, it's like, wait, what? How am I supposed to understand all this? Who is Jesus really? What's he he doing? And then Luke tells us Jesus went out and starts preaching and everyone's excited. They think this is amazing. And he goes to his hometown and you think it's all about to start. This is like the inauguration. And he picks this really famous text to preach that everyone knew and loved, which says that he's going to bring salvation. And yet by the time he's done talking, they get so mad at him that they want to kill him. But you know, you keep reading and surprise, it's like it doesn't phase Jesus. His hometown trying to throw him off a cliff. He doesn't even blink. Moses in the Old Testament, the first taint, time he tries to deliver Israel, they reject him and he runs out into the wilderness, but not Jesus. He just keeps going. And as we read what happens, we see that Luke gives all these demonstrations, these proofs 
that Jesus really is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and even more specifically, that he is going to do in this world what Israel was supposed to do. And this was pretty powerfully illustrated, if you remember, in chapter 5, as he cleanses a leper. Jesus cleanses a leper, which means somehow he is able to deal with the problem of uncleanness. That's a big problem if you read the book of Leviticus. And how did that work before? That was why we had that book and all these sacrifices. So this is a big move forward. And then he forgives someone's sins. And how did that happen normally? How did they think? It happened at the temple with all those sacrifices. And so it's like Luke is saying, Jesus has come to fulfill Israel and solve the problems of the world, and not just physical ones, but also spiritual, and he's going to do it, not just through him teaching, but through him saving. So where in the Old Testament you had the the temple and all these sacrifices and all these laws, which was great, it was limited because you couldn't just cleanse a leper who had leprosy. And sin, you you made a sacrifice for sin and you'd have to make it again. But now here's Jesus and he can do all that by himself. It's like he's everything we might dream that Israel would be. And you know who he says he came to provide this salvation for? And this is what starts making the religious leaders so angry. He says, I have come not to call the, the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, I am fulfilling Israel. I am bringing salvation for people who haven't obeyed the law, for people whom the law actually condemns, but who come putting their faith in me. I'm going to do for them what the law couldn't. And the religious leadership starts getting upset, and they start bringing up all these religious reasons why they don't think that should work, actually. Reading Luke, this is a little like a religious debate between them and and Jesus, because you remember, Israel had been sent into exile for disobedience to the law. And so, coming out of exile, they had a system they had started to develop. And you see this even at the end of uh, the book of Nehemiah. It's like they're in seed form. But they were like, we've got to be separate. We've got to be holy. And this is how we're going to do it. We're going to add all these laws and we're going to be really vigilant because we know these are the kinds of people that God's going to show his mercy to. These are the kinds of people that salvation is for. And Jesus is like, as you're doing that, you are missing the point. And this is the end of chapter five and the beginning of chapter six. Do you remember the story about people fasting at a wedding? And so You've got this good ritual, Jesus is saying, but the way you're using that ritual makes clear that you don't understand what God is actually doing in this moment. That's what Jesus is telling them. And then the next story is about Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath. And so they're arguing with Jesus, they're reading the law, studying the law, and they're getting upset with Jesus, which meant they didn't understand the law as well as they thought they did because they were arguing with the person who wrote it. And then Jesus even gives them a chance to repent. That's the thing. The the next story, Luke chapter 6, verse 6, the man with the withered hand in the synagogue. And Jesus asked them a question. And the answer should have been so obvious. He asked them a question about the law. And they totally should have known the answer to this. The answer should have been so obvious that they would have seen what they were getting wrong. This is like simple, simple. But instead of acknowledging that they were wrong, they get angry and they start trying to figure out how they can stop Jesus. And now we're at the turning point at least uh, the beginning, is becoming clear they are not opening to, they're not open to changing. And so then Jesus goes up on a mountain and he prays and he chooses 12 apostles, which I keep saying is his way of saying, okay, you missed your chance here, but that's not stopping what God is doing. The plan is still on. Even though this part of Israel is beginning to reject me, I am still going to fulfill what God promised to do through Israel by myself. And then he preaches a sermon. And he talks about these two groups. The first being the hungry, the poor, the weeping, and the people who are hated. And he says, these are the ones who are blessed because they are going to receive the kingdom. And then he talks about the rich, the fool, the the laughing, the respected. And he says, these are the ones that are in trouble because they're going to be judged. And again, you kind of have to feel that. 
like you were back then. Because then you're going to be asking the right questions. Because you see that and it's a little like, really? If you think about Jesus and, and two groups, two responses. Because for the most part, not totally, but for the most part, there's, there's everybody that society respects in the one group. And for the most part, everybody that society rejects in the other group. And it's the group that is rejected by society that's embracing Jesus. And he's saying, this is part of the plan. And again, you're like, is, is something going wrong here? What's happening? Is this, is this really how it's supposed to work? Is Jesus actually fulfilling the Old Testament? And if so, what is the problem with these people that are reading their Bible and missing what God is doing through Jesus? What's happening? And now finally, we're at chapter seven. Finally, right? But there's such a cool way that Luke does this, helps us see the answer to this. And we know he's answering this because later on in this chapter, we'll see that even John the Baptist is gonna be asking this question. He sends his disciples to ask Jesus about this because he's in prison. And Jesus answers him. He points him to what is going on and says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. I realize it's easy to be offended by me and what is happening, but you shouldn't be. It's good if you're not because it's happening. It really is. And these first two stories in chapter seven get us ready for that answer. And they get us ready for it in a really amazing way that I want you to see. Are you ready? <laughs> uh, we're almost at the part that I think is amazing because Luke is making this whole argument that if we were just reading our Old Testament right, we would totally understand what's happening with Jesus. It would be totally obvious. In fact, that's kind of the punchline of the book. We're gonna have to wait like two years to get to it, but that's where he's gonna take us if you read the end. We should have gotten this reading our Old Testament. And one way he helps us see that throughout the book is kind of subtle. And it is easy to miss, but once you see it, it just makes things pop. And it's happening in a big way in these first two stories in chapter seven. That's why I'm bringing it up. So you, you remember maybe to get you ready, there's a skill to reading Luke that goes beyond just like, hey, let me look up the word and get the definition and kind of diagram this sentence. That, that helps, I'm sure, but there's a little more skill reading Luke because reading Luke is a little like, and, and maybe you remember me saying this, it's a little like watching a play about Jesus on a stage while there's a movie going on behind it. And the movie is the Old Testament. And so you kind of have to learn to watch both at the same time because sometimes when Jesus is doing something on the stage, behind him, on the screen, imagine, is a scene from the Old Testament that is so similar. And the thing is, it's not a coincidence. It's part of how Luke is making his argument. Like, Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament. It is there if you look. And these are some of the stories you should be reading so you can understand what's going on with Jesus and why it's going on the way it is. I guess nowadays it would be a little like reading an article on the internet with hyperlinks. You don't absolutely have to press on the hyperlinks, but they definitely help you understand what's going on. And there are some big hyperlinks in the story of the centurion and the story of Jesus raising the widow's son. In fact, in the story of raising the widow's son, there's quotes, pretty much quotes word for word from certain stories in the Old Testament. And actually, all throughout chapter 7 through 10, Luke's keyed in on a particular section of the Old Testament that he thinks will help us understand. There are six direct references to this part of the Old Testament and 10 indirect in just those three chapters. And so you might say 16 times in three chapters, he points us back to a section in the Old Testament. If you say something 16 times, you probably want people to notice. And yet we didn't talk about it last week. And this week, sitting in my office, I'm like, you've got to see this. They've got to see this. It's, it's so amazing. And so again, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, as we're watching Israel reject Jesus, and if we're in the early church, seeing all these Gentiles 
follow Jesus. We've got all these questions about Jesus, like, is this how it's supposed to work? And do the religious leaders maybe have a point? And we see these are legit questions because even John the Baptist is wondering, and Jesus is going to give an answer. But before he does, Luke tells a couple stories that set us up that are so connected back to the Old Testament. And I think Luke has tried to make it easy for us to spot these stories by showing us how Jesus actually got ready, got us ready for these stories back in chapter four when he was rejected by his hometown. Luke chapter four, the way uh, Luke works, if you go back to Luke 4, 16 and following, this is like a, a preview scene. You get an idea of the whole movie if you're paying attention to Luke 4, because after Jesus picks a, a passage from Isaiah about God providing salvation, he stops, he purposefully stops right before the part about God judging his enemies, which was the part his hometown was wanting him to get to. <laughs> and then he tells them that he's not going to do the miracles they were expecting, and he implies that he's actually going to take the good God's doing out to the Gentiles by taking them back to the Old Testament and talking about Elijah and Elisha as a paradigm for his ministry. And then two stories in particular, so you can almost think about that like one of those TV shows where the actor talks to the audience, the scene pauses, and the actor looks at the audience and makes a comment about what's going on. It's like Jesus looks at us there and says, go back to the Old Testament and read about Elijah and Elisha. And in particular, a couple stories. Do you remember the stories? What were the stories? First, it was the story about Elijah and a widow. And then a story about Elisha and a soldier named Naaman. And Naaman really stands out because this is the only place in the Bible, besides where he's talked about in the Old Testament, that he's even mentioned. And so it's kind of a strange person for Jesus to bring up, but actually I think important for understanding what's going on. And we know it's important because now chapter 7, what happens as Luke tries to answer these questions about Jesus and who he is and what's going on, he tells us a story about Jesus and a soldier, and Jesus, and a widow. And because he's clued us in, in Luke 4, we already kind of know where to turn in the Old Testament story to compare and contrast. And so it's now like we have to, to press on the hyperlink. We, we've watched the play about Jesus and the soldier last week, and now we want to lift our eyes and look at the movie that was playing on the screen behind from the Old Testament. And it comes specifically from 2 Kings chapter 5. And if you turn there, and I, I want you to turn there because there are so many similarities and some pretty important differences, and both are important to see. But maybe first, let me tell you a reason why this particular story is so relevant. And that has to do with the book of, of Kings. And, and this is a lot of information, I know. It's a lot of work to preach the whole Bible in one sermon, but First and Second Kings are actually one book in the Hebrew Bible. And uh, it's a little bit like Luke in that it's history written by a prophet to make a point, to preach a sermon, in a sense. And he's preaching that sermon to kings, to, 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 in kings to Israel, the nation, while they're in exile in a place called Babylon. And so Jesus, he's in Israel after they got out of Babylon, after they came back. But Kings is written right around while they're still in exile. And when they would have been asking some big questions too about their identity and what was going on and how God was going to fulfill his purpose through them and what went wrong and what they were supposed to be doing. And so you can see how it's a key part of the Old Testament if you're living in Jesus's day, because this was written by prophets to help them evaluate and think about what God wants for Israel. And one of the big questions in exile, after exile, of course, would have been, how are we supposed to be thinking about pagans, about people who are, are Gentiles? Since they were living in Babylon, they saw a lot of them. And after they came back, they definitely had an opinion too. And the author of Kings tells a story that gives a glimpse of how they were supposed to be answering that question in chapter five. And you look at that story and it's got so many things in common with the story Luke tells about Jesus that it's hard not to think that this is intentional. And so let's start with some of the similarities. And along the way, we're gonna notice some of the differences because they're important, probably the most important. 
but you might make a list as we do, like almost a chart. What is similar and different? And one similarity is that in Luke 7, you've got a centurion and a soldier. Who is a soldier? An important soldier. Actually, in Luke 7, you've got an important Gentile soldier who is working for one of Israel's enemies, a foreign empire. And in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1, you've got Naaman. The story begins. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, who was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. And that's, that's pretty similar. If you were going to pick someone who looked like the centurion, Naaman is a good pick. Commander, centurion, Rome, Syria. That's one similarity. Two, in both stories, you've got this powerful soldier and you've got a servant. The centurion has a servant and Naaman does too. Now, the writer of Kings uh, says, the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And so this is definitely one of Israel's enemies. He's raiding Israel and winning. And at one point he kidnaps this little girl which is terrible. It's like she's been taken into exile, having to live away from the land of Israel. And like God has forgotten her. If you look at this story from the little girl's perspective, she's been taken from her parents and now she's basically living in this foreign country, serving as a slave. And yet she loves her master, which is surprising. And this is a similarity, similarity number three, because back in Luke, Luke tells us that the centurion loved his servant. He was highly valued by him, which was not normal either. This is not a normal slave-master relationship in either case. You wouldn't expect a Roman centurion to care about one of his slaves being sick, and you would not expect a little kidnapped Jewish girl to care about her Syrian master being sick either, and yet she does. And so she says to her mistress in verse 3, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. And you can hear it, would that my Lord, because that's like wishing. She's, she's doing what Jesus actually commanded us to do in Luke 6. She's loving her enemy. And that would have been hard. I mean, if you think about being kidnapped by someone and held as their slave, and if you saw them come down with leprosy, you probably would be tempted to think that's a pretty fair judgment from God. They're getting what they deserve. And yet this little Jewish girl responds very differently. Would that my Lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria. And so she tells her mistress about him, which I guess is another similarity. If you think back to the centurion, number four, the, the soldier hears about someone who can help him. He has a problem, Naaman, like the centurion, though his problem is different. And so this is one of the differences if we were making a, a chart. We've got four similarities, important Gentile soldiers, servants, love, hearing about someone who can fix their problem, though the problem is different. And difference number one is who is sick exactly. Because the centurion, his problem is that his servant is sick. And so there's a little bit of a shift going on already. The Gentile soldier is the one showing mercy. In uh, Kings, the Gentile soldier is the one who's sick. And it's the little girl who tells him about the prophet, Elisha, which causes him to send someone to Israel to find out more. Actually, first he talks to his master, his king, and he tells him what the girl said. And the king says, sends a letter. This is verse 4 and 5. So Naaman went in and told his lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he went, uh, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And there's a similarity uh, there, number 5. But this time, it's not so much between the centurion and uh, Naaman as much as between the Jewish leaders who are coming to Jesus and Naaman and the Syrian king in terms of how they think about how salvation works. Because you remember maybe how the elders of Israel went to Jesus and argued for the centurion. They say what? He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue which isn't that different than how Naaman's going to approach Elisha, like you could almost buy a miracle or earn it. But then something surprising happens in the story about Naaman because he takes this letter to the king of Israel 
And the king of Israel doesn't even seem to know about Elisha. And he knows, of course, but he doesn't even think about him when he's pressed against the wall here, verses six and seven. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I've sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. And that, of course, is a rebuke if you're the writer of Kings. That's a rebuke. That's an explanation. Why are you in exile and judged by God? The leadership of Israel is so spiritually ignorant, they're acting like pagans would, when even this little girl knows what to do. The king doesn't. He doesn't recognize Elisha really as being a prophet of God. But Elisha hears about it somehow. And I don't think the normal way either, because this Syrian commander comes in with all this money and all these things to talk about uh, his problem with the king, of course, it's going to be news and lots of people would know about it. But Elisha knows things a lot of people didn't. If you look at verse eight, he hears specifically about the king tearing his clothes. And so either he has a friend in the court who told him or as a prophet, he has access to special information. And he says, what's going on? This is verse eight. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel which is pretty much what the little girl said back in verse three. She was wishing her master would know that there was a prophet in Israel, which is what this story is ultimately about, you know? Because remember, the book of Kings is written to these exiles and the little girl's attitude aligns with Elisha's, which tells us it's the right attitude. She wants this Gentile to know who really speaks for God. And so does Elisha, which is why he calls him to himself. Though that's going to be a difference with the story in Luke. Uh, difference number two, what Elisha and Jesus do. Because Naaman goes to where Elisha is. And in the story about Jesus and the centurion, Jesus goes to him. You remember uh, the elders pleaded with Jesus and Jesus went with them, which I think tells you something beautiful about Jesus, actually, and even what's happening in the New Testament and what God's doing with the Gentiles. It's not so much them coming to Israel as it is God going to them. That's the difference. But now here's a sixth similarity because Naaman comes and stands before Elisha's house, but he doesn't actually see Elisha, which is similar to, right, to what happens with Jesus and the centurion because they didn't see each other before the miracle, at least in Luke. Jesus is on the way to the centurion's house when he stopped by the centurion's friends. It says he was near the house, so there's no centurion there. Matthew, he does talk about the centurion there when he tells the story, though. And this is something my daughter brought up to me uh, last week. Matthew says the centurion was talking to Jesus. Uh, but I don't think it's too big a deal, first of all, because we have two independent sources talking about someone being healed. That's kind of the main point. We don't want him to miss that. But also because the friends were representing the centurion. And if you're telling the, uh, uh, the story a little later and you're Matthew, you've got a different agenda than Luke. You're not as concerned about making this connection back to Kings since the friends are speaking for the centurion. You, you might just talk about it as the centurion himself speaking. We do that even now. A representative of Joe Biden speaks, saying literally Joe Biden's words, a message Joe Biden sent him to say. We could say Joe Biden said it. Or we could tell the story a little more carefully and say actually a representative of Joe Biden said such and such. And that's probably what's happening here in Luke, which is another one of those things that makes me think Luke is intentionally making this connection to 2 Kings because he's pointing out as many similarities as he can like this one. In, in verse 9 of 2 Kings chapter 5, Naaman doesn't see Elisha. He is standing outside Elisha's house. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Which takes us maybe to the seventh similarity and also a difference. But first the similarity, because in both cases, it's not just that they don't see each other, in both cases, when the healing happens, the person who's doing the healing isn't physically present with the person being healed. In Luke, Jesus just says the word. And in Kings, Elisha tells him to go down to the river. And that's a difference. Elisha uses a river. Jesus doesn't use any means outside of himself uh, and his word. That's the third difference. 
But there's also the similarity. Neither Elisha or Jesus are present at the healing. Though right away now, verse 11, there's another big difference. And this one's a big difference. There's a, a big difference between the centurion's attitude towards Jesus and Naaman's. This is number four. Because Naaman gets angry, uh, verse 11. But Naaman was angry and went away. And again, at the end of verse 12. So he turned and went away in a rage. And from a certain perspective, you can kind of understand what's going on with, with Naaman, maybe even more than you can understand the centurion's response, actually, because Roman centurions had a lot of power in Israel. Even nowadays, military leaders are kind of known for being serious and acting important and all tough, and this guy is not. He doesn't even feel important enough to have Jesus come to his house. So this is shocking humility, where Naaman is more what you would expect, even though it's good he's come all the way to Elisha, it's clear he still doesn't understand the way God works because Naaman's still thinking that he's really the one in charge. I mean, that's why he's coming with all his horses and all his chariots. And that's why he responds to Elisha's simple request the way he does. Verse 11, behold, I thought he would surely come out to me. And to me is emphatic. As someone has said, Naaman is confident that because he, the commander of the army of Syria, is standing at Elisha's door and he's there with so many horses and chariots and servants that Elisha will be impressed, awestruck, and will surely come out and pay homage to him. And so even though he's a leper and he's desperate, Naaman still has all this pride, which is why he doesn't like Elisha's solution. He had a way he thought Elisha was supposed to work. He says he thought Elisha would come out to him, end of verse 11, and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. And yet instead, Elisha just says, go to the Jordan and wash seven times. And ultimately, I think the issue is that way of being saved was too simple for Naaman and too humbling because it just seemed too ordinary. And obviously, Naaman thought of himself as a great man, and great men want great solutions. And so as one pastor explains, if the prophet had done something great or asked Naaman to do something great, Naaman would have been happy if he had come out and personally and waved his hand and said, if you go out and do this great thing that I'm about to tell you to do, you will have your healing. I don't think Naaman would have had a problem. Instead, I think Naaman would have said, yes, of course, I'm a man of valor. And he would have gone off and done whatever great deed the prophet had called him to do and come back and said, now have I earned my healing? Because that's why he was even bringing all that money in the first place. That's the kind of salvation and the kind of religion that made sense to him. It's the kind of salvation that you earn, which you remember is sort of how the Jewish leaders were thinking in Luke as well, when they were pleading with Jesus, this man is worthy. This man is worthy because of what he's done. But obviously that's not the kind of salvation the Bible says God provides. And so Elisha decides to give the man a healing in a way that's gonna force him to turn his whole way of thinking about the world upside down. Because he doesn't just want this Gentile to be healed, he wants him to know who God is and how salvation works, which of course was the whole purpose of Israel. That's the thing. If we're looking at our Bibles, what's the purpose of Israel? We go back to Genesis 1 to 11, because the Bible doesn't start with Israel. It starts with the whole world and a problem. And then Genesis 12, we get to Israel and a solution. And so Israel didn't just come into being for Israel, but as part of God's plan for how he's going to rescue the world from being in exile. And Exodus too, that's Exodus. Before God constitutes Israel as a nation, he tells them their purpose. They are to be a kingdom of priests to represent him to the world. And that's even why he saved them from Egypt the way he did. He specifically designed that salvation in such a way that the world would know that he alone is God and they were supposed to be the ones to represent him to the world. And even after they were taken into exile, it's like the writer of Kings is reminding them their purpose hasn't changed. In spite of their circumstances, this is still God's plan for Israel, what they were here for. You wanna know? The writer of Kings is like, look at Elisha. This is why we exist. Look at that little girl. And look at what actually happens when Israel does what it's supposed to do. Verse 13, 2 Kings chapter 5. There's going to be a similarity here and a difference. But again, let's start with the similarity. And this is number eight, maybe. Because in both stories, there's a healing that takes place. Though in the story with Naaman, it takes a little more work to get it. Because he's about to go away when Elisha says what he says, but verse 13, his servants come to him and, and, and say to him, my father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? 
And the pride there from Naaman is really stunning, isn't it? Because here he's got leprosy, and he's come all this way, and he's even willing to give money. But you touch pride. And he's thinking, I'm going to go home, even without trying. And so don't ever, you know, don't ever underestimate the folly of human pride. It almost cost Naaman his healing, and it's going to end up being part of why the religious leaders crucified Jesus. But here, Naaman listens to his servants, which is pretty amazing. In verse 14, the writer tells us, So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. And I like that little child part because, of course, it was a little child who told him to come to the prophet Elisha. And now that he's listened to the prophet, he's become like a little child, which, of course, is amazing. But what's more amazing is actually what comes next because this physical transformation points to a greater spiritual transformation that's taken place in Naaman's heart. And he goes back to Elisha, verse 15, he and all his company, and he came and he stood before him and he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Which, of course, is like this significant statement of faith, especially if you know anything about the ancient Near Eastern world, like completely polytheistic. Nobody thought in terms of one God who created the world. They just thought of many gods. So this is a significant statement of faith. There is one God. I know there's one God. And this significant of state statement of faith is coming from a Gentile soldier, and he's so grateful that he wants to give Elisha a present as a way of saying thanks, verse 15. So accept now a present from your servant. And the emphasis is on that word servant, your servant, because earlier the king of Syria had called Naaman his servant. But now Naaman confesses that he's Elisha's servant, ultimately meaning a servant of God. And yet Elisha won't accept the gift, not because he doesn't like gifts or have needs, but because Elisha doesn't want Naaman to be confused about the nature of God's grace. You can't earn it, and you can't buy it. And when he goes back to Syria, Elisha doesn't want anyone thinking that you did. And so when Naaman urges Elisha to accept a gift in return for what God's done through him, Elisha says, verse 16, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And so actually, instead of Giving God a gift, Elisha gives Naaman something. Verse 17, you see Naaman asks for dirt. If not, he says, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. And there are some reasons he probably asked this. If you um, want to know those reasons, we can talk later. Some of them are probably just ignorance, actually. But at the very least, you can imagine what a testimony this would have been as Naaman goes back to Syria with all this dirt. Because what do you think would have happened when they saw the transformation on his face and then him bringing all this dirt? No doubt the people would have been asking, what are you doing? And he would have had the chance to respond by saying, I've been changed in Israel. And not just outwardly. Because from this point on, I serve only Yahweh. Which is just so amazing and impossible, really. A Gentile soldier worshiping God like this and becoming a testimony to other Gentiles. And yet it happened because a little girl, mistreated and taken into exile, believed God and was doing what Israel was supposed to be doing when they were in exile, which is part of why Luke even brings up this story, because actually, while there are a lot of similarities, the soldier, the servant, the love, the sickness, the messengers, the prophet, the healing, the distance, the Gentiles' faith, there are also some pretty big differences. Like, like first of all, who is the one showing mercy in Luke? It's not the Jewish person, it's the Gentile. And, and second, because who is the one thinking of salvation as something you can earn in Luke? It's not the Gentile, it's the Jewish leadership. And third, because of whose faith is on display, because in Kings, really, it's the little Jewish girl who's the hero. I mean, here is this little girl trusting God, seeking the good of this Gentile. And that's why he even comes to know who God is. And yet in Luke, Jesus is impressed by the faith of whom? It's not the, it's not the religious Jewish leadership. And it's not the Jewish people following him. It's the Gentile. Verse 9, Luke 7. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. 
And that's a big deal. We compare these two Gentiles, clearly the centurion is much more ready than Naaman was. And yet we compare Israel, and right there, it's like Jesus is telling you the problem because we look back even at a book like Kings, and clearly Jesus isn't the one who is out of step with God's plan. The religious leaders were. It has always been God's plan to use Israel to go after the Gentiles. Even that little girl knew it. This is not plan B. This is God's plan. And so the reason they're rejecting him is not because Jesus wasn't paying attention to the Old Testament, but actually because they weren't paying careful attention enough. Jesus is doing what Israel was always supposed to do. As we see Jesus taking salvation out to the outcast, to the sinner, to the people who didn't have the law, we can be confident that he really is doing exactly what God planned for him to be doing. And that's a reason for hope. We see this place filled up with Gentiles. We see Gentiles coming to Christ. It's not because God is failing to accomplish his plan. It is because he is. Jesus is the savior God promised. But while there's hope, there's also a warning because you know that the thing is, these people back in Jesus's day should have known that. And yet they didn't. And you kind of have to ask why, why? And you know, Luke in, in the story in, in Luke seven, at this point, he doesn't tell us. He's a good storyteller. But I think we look back at the story in second Kings and we get a hint. Because like I said, Kings was written to the Jewish people when they were in exile. And while he gives them this little girl's story as an example to follow, he also ends the story with a warning. Do you remember the warning? He tells us about another servant. And this time it's not Naaman's, but it's Elisha's. A servant named Gehazi, who obviously would have experienced a lot of spiritual privileges uh, being near Elisha, imagine, seeing what he saw. But he didn't take advantages of, advantage of those privileges. And he didn't take advantages of those privileges at the end of the day because he was greedy. And so while Elisha wouldn't take anything from Naaman because he was concerned about the Gentile knowing God, Gehazi was different. He was more concerned about getting the Gentile stuff. And so he couldn't believe that Elisha wouldn't take what Naaman was offering. And so in verse 21, we read, so Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, all is all well? And he said, all is well. My master sent me to say there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. Which, of course, Naaman was happy to give and, and more. And, and Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants and they carried them before Gehazi. And when they came to the hill, that he took them from their hand and put them in the house and he sent the men away and they departed. And after coming back to Elisha and having hidden what he received from Naaman, Elisha comes to Gehazi, giving him a chance to repent. Where have you been, Gehazi? And yet Gehazi's hard-hearted. He lies. He says, your servant went nowhere, which is so foolish. I mean, does he really think Elisha doesn't know? He's like literally a prophet. But obviously the problem is that even though he's near Elisha and he has all these privileges, he's hard-hearted. And so he doesn't see what's coming. And he becomes a warning to Israel who is in exile because what happens next? What happens because of his greed and a failure to repent is that he trades places with the Gentile. If you think of it, by the end of this story, you've got this Gentile who at the start was so far from God and by the end had experienced God's grace as a result of the witness of a little servant girl and humbles himself and trusts in God's promises of mercy. And so he walks away clean and worshiping and you've got this Israelite, Gehazi, who had all these spiritual privileges and knew a lot, and yet in spite of that, treated God as if he were just one of the gods of the nations, and as a result, and essentially switched places with the pagan, Naaman. That's the punchline. If you look down at verse 26, Naaman, the leper, has become clean, and the clean Israelite becomes a leper. Did not my heart go out with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you, Elisha says? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? He's like reading Gehazi's mind. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. 
So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. And if we fast forward to what we're seeing in the Gospel of Luke, it's scary because even though it's here, it's like right there in the scriptures, this huge warning to Israel while they were in exile. Most of Israel didn't listen. And especially the ones studying their Bibles the most, the religious leadership. Because as we keep reading, you know what we're going to see? We're going to see they didn't listen. And one big reason they didn't listen to Jesus was because they were greedy. In fact, there's a line, Luke 16, 14, which is really telling. After Jesus tells a story, Luke says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Even though they studied the Old Testament, they were in danger of being just like Gehazi and missing what God was doing when the answer to all their problem was, problems was standing right in front of them. And they were being tempted to miss him, and they were about to miss him for pretty much the same reason. And, you know, I don't want that to be true for any of you because God is accomplishing salvation through Jesus. It is big, and it is amazing, and it is laid out for us here in the scriptures. It is this comprehensive, remarkable, gets deeper every time you look at it plan. And if we come to him in faith, we're going to experience this salvation. But even if we have all these amazing privileges, even if we have this book, which, which is so profound, we can still miss it. We're not diff that different from these people back then. And one way we might miss it is if we don't guard against greed. So let's pray God helps us uh, be the kind of people who study our Bibles and get the point. Not the kind of people who study their Bible and miss the point, but who respond to what we read like the little girl and like the centurion in faith. Let's pray. Lord, uh, if anything, hopefully uh, you're just reminding us the Bible is, is an amazing book. <laughs> it's your word. And so why is it, it shouldn't surprise us that it just gets deeper. Please help us, though, not to be the kind of people like the Pharisees who read and 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 studied and studied and studied, and I'm sure talked about it, talked about it, talked about it, and, and missed what was pretty obvious, miss, missed the point. Um, because their hearts were filled uh, with, with something different. They were just using you, really, to get what they wanted. And so, uh, Lord, that could happen to us. We don't want that to happen to us. We want to be people like that little girl who trust you, like that centurion who, who trust you and who, uh, who, who see Jesus in the scriptures and are transformed by him. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.